Thank you for downloading this episode of the Brett Easton Ellis podcast. We'll get things started in just a few moments. If you're a writer, you know how important it is to be in the right headspace before you start writing. That's why when you need to listen to music, turn to R-Tunes. R-Tunes is a streaming music service that blends indie artists with your favorite mainstream artists. Easily discover new artists, listen to great music, and get better sound quality than Pandora. R-Tunes handcrafts their music selections so you don't have an algorithm choosing the same music over and over. Also, artists and comedians, sign up free today, start uploading your music, and get paid. You'll also gain exposure next to mainstream artists. Brett Easton Ellis podcast listeners will receive three months of unlimited skips and no ads by signing up at R-Tunes with a Z dot com and using promo code Brett 50 Then simply download the iPhone or Android app app for your device and receive another three months as a thank you. That's rtunes with a z.com. The following program is a podcast1.com production. This is the Brett Easton Ellis podcast. Use control and you hold too tight, but turn your head long enough to let it bite. Faith left me staring at the ceiling through the night It's freaking me out And when I fell asleep it plagued my dreams And 30 bits of glass You're listening to the Brett Easton Ellis Podcast And I'm here with filmmaker Alex Aja at the Podcast One Studios in Beverly Hills I recently went to a screening of Richard Linklater's new film, Boyhood, at the CAA screening room in Century City a week ago, and it will be released on July 11th. And for those of you who follow me on Twitter, you know that I came out of it thinking it's the best mainstream American film I've seen in a very long time, an intimate epic about 12 years in the life of an American boy in Texas from about the age of six until his first day at college. And yes, the role of Mason is played by the same actor throughout the film, Eller Coltrane, and we watch him age as we watch everyone else age throughout the film. Ethan Hawke is his father, Patricia Arquette as his mother, the best performance she's ever given, Laura Lee Linkletter as his sister. The movie is two hours and 45 minutes and rated R, and it's an overpowering experience, but it's not heavy. It breezes by in its earnest, scrappy, sincere, dogged way, and it's not done in a neo-documentary style. The movie follows storylines and character arcs, and what would seem like a stunt is an actual sustained movie, and the script and direction both by Linkletter are his best. A sincere, heartfelt piece of humanist realist filmmaking that would have script gurus Robert McKee and the late Sid Field blowing their heads off in reaction to Boyhood. Since Boyhood does not follow any of the lame rules of screenwriting that are just now beginning to become dismantled by screenwriters and filmmakers, I think partly because of the economic reality of making films no longer has anything to do with the studios or with rules, really. It is a DIY world right now for most of us, and these screenwriting rules that McKee and Field came up with became popular when agents started making the creative decisions in Hollywood in the 1980s after the tourist decade of the 70s crashed to a halt with Heaven's Gate. A kind of blueprint for a successful script-slash-movie emerged, or so the agents and the studios believed, and thousands of bad movies were made following 
following these rules, embraced by a nation of deluded writers who also believed in the formula and in a system now long dead that encouraged them. And I say dead because the system doesn't make those kinds of movies anymore, so really, why bother? What really captures us here in boyhood and why it feels so immediate and in such a rush is that it's about the essence of experience and behavior. This is what drives the movie. The miracle of this almost three-hour-long movie is that it's not interrupted by story beats, plot devices, that inciting incident by page 15, the three-act structure, an explosive ending, fake twists, fake reveals, fake drama for drama's sake. Linklater simply lets his characters behave exactly as they would in real life. And it feels in this moment of trumped-up artificiality and all the prestige victim narratives, almost like something kind of revolutionary, a snapshot of the country as a summing up of the American experience, an ambitious, very, very funny, extremely moving slice of American life without any pretense. What seems so fresh about Boyhood is also what's fresh about everything that Richard Linklater has been creating lately, his refusal to conform to a kind of PSA banality and inauthenticity that so many American independent movies feel the need to traffic in, in order to be seen, distributed, and reviewed, all that shit, the blatant setup, the victimization narratives, the inciting incident by minute 15, the series of hardships the main character needs to work his way through, the hopeful ending, the awful cleverness of it all, showbiz, showbiz. Boyhood makes all of that seem fake. Boyhood offers a different kind of tension, a different kind of suspense. We just want to know at every moment how Mason is going to navigate through the world, the world all of us have navigated through. What is his reaction going to be when his mother's drunken new husband throws a glass at him? Or how is he going to react when he comes home later than he promised from a party high and is confronted by his mom who is having her own get-together? And this is one of the truest, most loveliest moments I've ever seen between a mother and a teenage son. And every time you think something has been set up in a scene, the movie constantly refuses to end the scene in the conventional movie-ish manner we are accustomed to. For example, a group of high school guys getting drunk fool around with a saw they find in the room they're hanging out in, which is being refurbished, fooling around with it while talking about girls they've laid or haven't laid. And because of the introduction of the saw into the scene, we are automatically programmed to think that something is going to happen with that prop. Someone is going to be injured. Maybe it's the youngest, most innocent-looking kid there who doesn't want a beer and is berated by the older kids. But the scene ends as it would in real life. The saw is just a saw that the guys are fooling around with, a harmless prop. Linklater refuses to hype anything up. He never has. And this is what makes Boyhood so luminous. I loved Boyhood and was overwhelmed by the commitment of his filmmakers and its cast, and it suggests a future for movies that is barely felt by American filmmakers this year. Either they are made for a global audience and must conform to the newish way studio franchise movies must creatively exist. And this is true for even a mildly interesting movie like Edge of Tomorrow, which ultimately succumbs to the same creative dead end, or they are fringe projects made for no money that need the stars aligned in such an impossibly precise way that they are able to even be reviewed, much less seen. And that's a miracle often. There are times during Boyhood when it fleetingly joins The 400 Blows and E.T. as a great movie about childhood. I haven't seen a movie like this in way too long, a movie that is quietly determined about showcasing humanity. But what is also interesting in movies can be a lack of humanity. Numbness is a feeling, too. Nihilism is exciting. Violence is thrilling. And while buzzing over boyhood, and it's a movie that, yes, makes you feel pretty good, it made me think also about feel-bad movies, which can also give you a big charge, a big kick, and confirm your worst feelings about the world. And that is a certain high as well. The new French extremists traffic in the opposite of boyhood and Richard Linklater's sensibility, which seems a fusion of everyone from 
Jean Monroir to the Melvin and Howard era, Jonathan Demme. One of the stars of the new French extremist movement is Alexandra Aja, who made the very popular and extremely gory slasher film, High Tension. And for those of us whose boyhoods were filled with the Warren comics of the 70s, the slasher movies of the 80s and beyond, the body horror movies that seemed to begin with Cronenberg reaching in 1979, the mainstreaming of that with the alien bursting out of John Hurt's chest, Poring over issues of Fangoria, fascinated with makeup artists like Tom Savini, stealing ourselves for the biggest gross-outs, believing at a certain point we can take anything. Well, the new French extremists of the Audis argue, um, no, you think you've seen that, been there? No, it's so much worse than what you've been shown. And High Tension is one of those movies that serves as a kind of marker, a kind of before and after picture in a way that Psycho can be looked at as there was a time before Psycho and a time after Psycho. And of course, it's impossible to be as influential a psycho, but if you've seen High Tension, you'll understand where I'm going. The plot of High Tension is very simple, a nightmarish home invasion. And if you haven't seen this, try and find the original unrated version because the loss of the violence lessens the power of this hideously bloody sequence. leads to a kidnapping and a series of other murders that take place during one long night into the next morning in the French countryside with a huge plot twist that throws into doubt everything we have been witnessing about three quarters of the way through. And this is a very typical reaction of the French extremists. Is the hero the villain? Is the villain actually the hero? The twist has its own nightmare logic, and it's a big surprise, but you might start grumbling about the actual logic of it. But logic only gets you so far in horror movies. It only gets you so far in movies, period, and the French extremists aren't interested in that. Martyrs, frontiers, trouble every day. These movies of the French extremist movement are visually impressive, beautifully photographed, and the violence, realistic, extremely bloody, torturous almost, is the point. Gore is what we react to. It's the statement. The deaths are the point of the scene. They are, in fact, the drama of the movie. And these movies from the last 10 years are a kind of rebellion against the well-behaved French cinema that the world has come to know and love, the costume dramas, the frothy comedies, the earnest liberal polemic. And they bring up the old debate about trash versus art. Is it art just because of its subject matter? Is it trash just because of its subject matter? I remember getting to a fight with someone when I told them that I thought the remake of The Last House on the Left was a better movie than Precious. They were both out around the same time, and I didn't think I was being provocative. I just thought it was a better-made film, more sure of its tone and what it wanted to achieve, regardless of its subject matter and the the near-pornographic gore level. I tuned out of the argument when I realized that the person thought the social consciousness of Precious already elevated it to important, and important equaled good. And therefore, they could not understand why I thought the formal rigor of the remake of The Last House on the Left was more important. Another example, if you want to make it, Django Unchained is a comedy with deadly serious and even horrific moments, but 12 Years a Slave is noble and somber and art-conscious, and we endure the suffering because we think it's going to be good for us, and I prefer Tarantino's movie on just about every single level. The idea of movies as a respectable medium is always going to be in play with a certain part of the audience. But respectability is just as fake as movie gore, and it reminds us of what Godard once said when someone complained about the blood in one of his movies. He replied, that's not blood, it's red. And you can imagine the new French extremists on one level agreeing with this, that the violent imagery is symbolic, even though it is achieved with the most stunningly upsetting and realistic gore that movies have ever seen. We are a long, long way from the bright red splatter of George Romero's Dawn of the Dead. They are serious and intent, and their makers are artists, and they remind me of something John Carpenter said recently in an interview with Robert Rodriguez. Don't make a horror movie for money. 
essentially saying that to truly disturb and freak out an audience, a filmmaker has to tap into his own nightmares and let them play out as intensely as possible without any regard for the audience or their needs or expectations. French extremism has its roots in the American exploitation films of the 1970s, where everything suddenly seemed allowable. The violence heaped onto American films was shocking to the movie-going audience, but also seemed relevant in the context of the hopelessness of that moment. And with Vietnam coming into everyone's living rooms on a nightly basis, the increasingly extreme horror movies of the 70s seemed like a mirror to what was happening in real life. Critics call the new French extremists, quote-unquote, adversarial reactions to contemporary norms of culture and society, and as a, quote-unquote, response to the rise of right-wing extremism in France during the last decade, filmmakers as different in temperament as Gaspar Noe, with Irreversible, the infamous head-crushing scene with the fire extinguisher and the nine-minute rape scene, and even Michael Haneke with the family being slaughtered in funny games, have experimented with this extremism as well, with Haneke saying in relation to some of his movies having been booed at Cannes, some of my fondest professional memories are of upsetting the audience that can. And that's kind of an indication of where the movement comes from, upsetting the status quo, which is really what the most powerful movies always do. So, Alexander, what is your take on the new French extremists? I know that you, you make movies in America now, and really I think High Tension and your first movie, Furia, are both in French. And yeah. that you had, you made Furia after you graduated from the Sorbonne with a major in philosophy. Mm-hmm. Your father's also a filmmaker, so you grew up on sets. So you make this movie, High Tension, and you become lumped into this group of the, sometimes it's called the Splat Pack, but primarily because you're from Europe, it's called the New French Extreme Movement or whatever. Does it really exist? Is there an ideology behind it? Or is it just a time when all of these filmmakers started to make these particular kind of movies. Is it in reaction to anything? I, I, I don't really think it's in reaction, in fact, in France, unfortunately. Like, I know that we, uh, we made high tension in a time where actually it was just impossible to do any genre picture in France. It was only like, you know, costume drama and, and comedy and that's it. And at the same time, it was really hard to find any... A satisfactory like a, a horror movie even from the US cinema and all the pleasure uh, movie goer came from video club from going back to uh, the good old like uh, you know like Laserdisc at the time or VHS of the good old horror movies from the 70s 80s and so you know, with my writing partner, we just started writing some kind of homage to the American cinema from the 70s, you know, from to the John Bowman, to the Sam Peckinpah, I mean, to, you know, to be Hooper, to Wes Craven, to, I mean, all those people that just made us experience nightmare as we were watching a movie, made us experience something that was stronger than any other experience watching other movies because the immersion was so strong. So we just wrote you know, high tension as a homage and as a tribute to all those filmmakers. And the movie happened to travel well. And as we were releasing the movie in different festivals, we realized that all around the world, a few other directors, you know, were doing exactly the same thing with the same motivation. And 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 I don't know, I don't remember exactly who, you know, started calling the Splatback first. But I thought that was a really relevant term because we were coming without knowing each other we came with the same intention of rehabilitating fear in the movies you know like after like a decade of scream 
and 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 teen slasher and like I know what you did last summer kind of movie it was time to go back to the actual you know tension suspense and and we were all making this and high tension was really the first genre picture to kind of open in France I mean it was not a huge box office hit but it was quite decent and the review were good and after that high tension show away to other filmmakers that were dying to do that kind of movie for a long, long time, but couldn't because, because you know, everything is financed through pre-sale in France and TV only by, like, you know, like a primetime program. So there's some kind of indirect censorship and high tension kind of opened the, you know, opened the door for Martyr, for, you know, for all those, like, uh, Frontier, for all those movies that became the French extreme uh, kind of movement. The Splat Pack also includes many American directors, or is it only American directors? Eli Roth, I know, yes, Rob Eli. Zombie, yeah. uh, who all have a similar sensibility, whose roots all go back to the 70s, ex- I don't want to say it's purely exploitation film, but a kind of 70s sensibility mm-hmm. in movie making. So High Tension kind of had a bit of a troubled history here in the U.S. in terms of getting released. Uh, I guess it was was Lionsgate. Yeah, Lionsgate, Lionsgate uh, got the U.S. rights, and you had, of course, trouble with the rating board here, mm-hmm. who demanded that you excise a minute or two. How yeah. much did you? How much you ultimately cut out of that? I think it's two minutes and a half uh, for high tension, uh, and I think it's like four minutes for the Hills of Eyes. And uh, you know, every movie is a is a, some kind of challenge with the MPA, because every movie is supposed to be outrated. If not, we cannot unfortunately release it. And the MPA has very subjective rules about you they know yes. what is the NC seventeen and what is an outrated movie. So every time, like we were like pushing and pushing, and everything is about the timing. You know, like when you come to the MPA and. A week before, like, Hostel just opened and they realized that they might have been too kind with the movie. And so they start, like, you know, like, basically being tough again a little bit more. And, and they ask you to cut much more, like, a, a graphic and blood. I mean, it, it is a very different system from Europe. You know, Europe, we have a, also a censorship, but it's a censorship that established by, you know, like, a movie is going to be, like, a, a, a PG-13 or R-rated, but... No one under 16 or no one under 12 or the 13 can, you know, like come to, to see the movie. It's not up to the parents. In the U.S., the fact that parents are deciding if they can bring their kids to see a movie make the whole MPA kind of uh, a little bit more like, you know, thinking about, yeah, but if parents want to bring kids, so it's R-rated, but it's too much, so NC-17 should be better. And it is a very... Um, Politic, uh, political kind of aspect of filmmaking that unfortunately is not very pleasant. And also here, what isn't pleasant is that very, very few directors have final cut, whereas in Europe, it's, I think, kind of a given. It's a, a given. Film, in a France, I mean, not in Europe, but in France, the final cut for the director is part of the law. It's, it's like the, the authorship of the movie is like, no matter what, even if you didn't write the script, as the director, you own the movie. And you only loan the movie to a producer for a certain amount of years. So you, you have the ownership. You have the copyright of your movie and you have the final cut. You can decide during production to change the script or to take another direction or to do something very different with the editing. And no one can really tell you anything. Of course, there is other way, like, you know, like 
budget way to create censorship, you know, like when you don't have an editing room and you don't have people to work on the movie because no one is paying them, you have to, of course, follow. But at the end of the day, you still have the full freedom. And because you have that freedom, it's a given. Somehow you may be more uh, predisposed to listen to other people's opinion. You're less into a defense mode. I mean, it's something that I discovered coming in the U.S. because I was really scared about losing that artistic freedom by making movies in the U.S. as well. And I realized that I was reacting first in a very defensive way. I was not really listening because, I, I, you know, like from the minute someone was talking about the movie, I had the feeling that they were going to, you know, like cut the movie into pieces and transform that movie into something else. And with the years, I learned to listen more and, and kind of react to that and try to, you know, always find a solution that kind of fit with my vision, but in the same time is listening to, you know, like the people making making the movie. But it's somehow the French system is is kind of protecting you a little bit more mm-hmm. and put you in a better mood in a, to create and not in a defensive where you have to argue and just and just write like, you know, like I don't know, hundred and pages of emails and notes answer and I mean this is insane. I, I hope some Someday someone will publish the notes that you can receive on every movie, <laughs> because we like a comparison about like you know like what if we had listened to that note from the studio? What if we had listened to that note from that producer? Because it's beyond imagination. It's like it it's, is. It is so crazy. It is. I remember one of my favorite notes after I was working on a script. I'll never forget this. One of the notes. I think mean, maybe number forty-six was maybe they're all ghosts. So it was kind of like, and I realized at that point on the project, no one really knew what they were doing. But, you know, as someone who's made some of the most imaginatively gory films, and I say that not as a pejorative. I say that as a very cool thing, whether it's uh, in a kind of comic way with Piranha, your remake of Piranha, or the remake of Maniac that you produced and wrote, definitely with high tension. I mean, insanely imaginative effects with violence and gore. And I was kind of thinking about this, and I I imagine I know what the answer is. What's off limits? I mean, in terms of violence, is there anything? I look back on, uh, with American Psycho, I mean, two of the killings that people were most upset by was the killing of a dog and the killing of a child at the zoo, which I guess I should have known, but surprised me to the degree that it's perfectly acceptable to murder thousands of young women in movie after movie after movie after movie, yet if a child is endangered or an animal is harmed, that seems to be going too far. Is there anything you just wouldn't film? Or is it all about context? I think it's all about context. It's all about, you know, like, uh, what's the protagonist, what's your point of view in the in the story, and what the protagonist will see if, if it was real, to create the best immersion. If... It needs to be the most shocking or disgusting, like you know, like a murder. You have to go for it. You know, you cannot be like less and you know, like less is more and 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 not show it because you won't create the experience for the audience that the protagonist is going through, watching that murder. So I think it, you have to show. You know, sometimes you have to show so like the audience is shocked and the audience feels for the for the for the person that they are like you know like following in the story but there is some uh, not on my side but uh, when we were writing the the hills of eyes mm-hmm. 
we had we had one kind of uh, uh, limit on on high tension. I really wanted to. There is that scene where the killer is following that little boy in, in the, the cornfield. Yes, very and, effective. Yeah, and, and and basically you see the the shotgun on the head of the of the kid, and then you cut to a wide shot outside of the right. the corns, and you just see the the flash. But in fact, the in the script, I was going to have the actual head of the kid like splatter in the on mm-hmm. the camera on the lens you know with a with a mm-hmm. low angle and i didn't do that because i felt that was maybe i don't know something kind of told me but that's the only time i can remember on my side to have some kind of limits uh when we were writing uh, the hills of eyes i wanted to change that element where uh when the family is attacked mm-hmm. in the trailer like the people from the hills comes in and they grab that canary bird and one of them is like uh, beating off the the head of the canary and spreading the blood in his mouth before attacking the other girl and raping the the sister and i felt it was okay you know what i've seen that in the original movie i want to do something different and i thought about like you know having some kitten that maybe the little sister was traveling with some like you know like really like small kitten and that maybe the people from the hills took the kitten put the kitten in some kind of a blinder put some milk with and were looking at the the kitten and start doing like a kitten shake and and drinking it and and i thought it was really fun you know i thought it was really funny and funny i mean yeah. like in a in a dark way but i i i thought it was a really good idea to shock the people in the trailer, but also the audience, and to make them feel that those people are completely insane, and they should be really scared of them. And I pitched that to Wes Craven, and had like a full reaction of like no way. And I was like, why? You know, like I, I don't, I don't understand why you like putting that limit on 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 that scene. And he had that answer, which was like, you don't understand. If we do that, people are going to try. Yeah. And 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 and. You know, it was like, why people will put kitten in a blender with milk and try to do a kitten milk, a kitten check? And and it was just that instinct of him coming from a long story of making movies like The Last House on the Left that creates so much... Uh, um, Kind of like a, 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 you know, like stories in newspaper of like people copycat, a copycat, and a, and and scream, you know, obviously around the world, you know. With personally, I grew up watching our movies, and I never same here copycat any no. you know any of them. So I don't even understand. No, so the other forces, yeah, it's, other it's, forces. It's, 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 it's not the movie. It's not the movie. It's right. not the books. It's really right. like something else that, that was supposed to happen. But I guess for someone with, like Wes Craven at that time who carry somehow, even if you know that, like a part of responsibility or guilt, uh, at least, it was like, I don't want to do that anymore and I just want to, you know, like, no kitten. Well, it's like, look, it's with Stanley Kubrick withdrawing A Clockwork Orange from UK cinemas after there was a similar attack after that movie's release. I mean, I don't know if there's a certain generational mindset. I mean, Kubrick and Craven being, you know, much older filmmakers and feeling that kind of moral responsibility. I was being um, interviewed by GQ for their November issue that's coming up, and they're doing a thing about horror movies. And I think one of the questions was, what was the most upsetting death that you've seen in a horror movie that you remember from being very young? Not recently, but being very young. And I had been weirdly flashing on a movie called Halloween 3, Season of the Witch, which has nothing to do with the first two Halloween movies. And it kind of has this ridiculous plot, but it stayed with me ever since 1983. I like the movie. I liked how it handled gore. 
I can't even explain it. It's about chips made from Stonehenge placed in Halloween masks. And there's a testing sequence where a little boy puts on the mask, and because of a certain sound frequency, that sets off something in the chip in the mask that causes the boy's head to start caving in on itself, and suddenly cockroaches and snakes and rats start bursting out of his head and pouring out of the mask. And this was this came out in 1983, and I remember it being so profoundly violating that I still that I'm well, I'm still talking about it. It's just it's so irrational. It's so without any kind of logic. And I think that's why it's so effective. Someone thought this up and then filmed it, and it's really an upsetting sequence. But sometimes I think that one of the first murders that bothered me so much, I remember being shocked by, is the first throat slitting in the original Friday the 13th from 1980. I saw it with friends the first day it opened sometime in May that year. and It was a hard R movie that we got in with my fake ID. And I, I hated the movie at the time. Though now I watch it, I watched it recently and it has aged well. And compared to the bulk of terrible looking horror movies of the last couple of decades, I, I thought it's quite painterly and beautiful in a strange way. But I had not seen violence and gore like that in a big wide release movie released by Paramount. And though I got my bearings, I was very upset by that actual brief throat slitting. That was, up until then, kind of the most realistic one that I'd seen. It was designed by Tom Savini. Uh, It's very quick and very realistic, and I don't think any of us had seen that before. It was kind of a moment, as was the arrow pushed through Kevin Bacon's neck was a moment. Yes, in fringe movies, we'd seen things. Sure, there was violence. But in a huge summer release, the fact that we saw these things, things that made... John Carpenter's Halloween looked like a Disney movie was shocking regardless if you like the movie or not or familiar with Tom Savini's work which I was of course because of Dawn of the Dead but that was a zombie movie and Friday the 13th was a quote unquote realistic movie about a bunch of kids being picked off at a summer camp the context was different just as the context was different for Halloween 3 what are some of the more upsetting deaths in movies that you remember that have haunted you I you know I think the the the, the most uh, uh, the first one that I remember is uh, being very young and being with some like um, friends older than me that were watching uh, Raider of the Lost Ark and the melting you know like face at the end was definitely my first uh, uh, a strong memory of a death that I was not. You know, ever can imagine. You know, it was. I think what what's really shocking in 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 those kind of deaths is to not even like if we were asked to to think about something similar to that, and and, and so that was like the first the first one. I think then, I guess the 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 hook that you don't see in Texas and some massacre is is mm-hmm. for me like the you know just the idea of that butcher hook that gets in the middle of the the back. That's for me like something that really like the idea is always stronger. You know, it's always the concept or like what the death is going to be that for me is more effective than the actual uh, 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 thing that does. You know, it's like it's like a rape, you know, like I think showing a rape is not necessarily more effective than the idea of, you know, I, I kind of like if, if you take like straw dogs, straw dogs. You know, she is like inside the house. She's uh, uh, with this ex kind of boyfriend that she has when she was a teen, and he really wants to have sex with her. And she says, "Okay, you know what? I'm not going to fight. I'm going to let him do what he has to do." And so she's get 
raped silently and at the end she thinks it's over and she turns and there is like his four friends that are waiting their turn to rape her as well and I think the idea of them waiting is stronger than the actual you were talking about Irreversible uh, Irreversible is a you know very strong movie but I I never been affected by the the eight or nine minutes rape scene because right. I kind of feel after like you know a couple minutes that it's Monica Bellucci and that's a movie and it's not real you know like the idea doesn't stay with me and I think it's the same with this you know I think it's it's stronger to see the hook the butcher hook and to see the actual like a, 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 a girl being lift and put on the hook and not actually see the hook getting on the back than see the hook on the back sometime well I think also the very disturbing death in the Texas Chainsaw Massacre which is a slow burn horror movie nothing really happens but this kind of ominous mounting dread is the first death mm-hmm. when the door opens it's Leatherface and he hits the guy on the head with yeah. the mallet and I think that's one of the first movies where I saw someone go into their death throes because the guy's shaking on the floor he hasn't been fully killed yet and that was shocking it's not particularly bloody yeah. and I think people forget about the Texas Chainsaw Massacre that there is much more gore that is implied than you actually see in that movie and people keep talking about oh it's one of the most violent movies ever made it's actually not it's not and it's it, no, it's but, it's, but it is one of the most effective movies Efficient, ever made. Sure, yeah. Yeah, it's a masterpiece. But I agree with you to a degree about the rape in Irreversible, the Gaspar Noe film. And, you know, look, Kubrick filmed the famous rape in The Clockwork Orange, and that seemed to be almost kind of a showbiz kind of rape. That was pure sensation. And I, I don't think it's a particularly that disturbing scene because it's done with through Kubrick's kind of showmanship, that movie so produced, The Clockwork Orange. Straw Dogs is a different thing. And when, when, when we were talking about Straw Dogs, uh, for younger listeners, we were talking about the original Sam Peckinpah, not yes. the quite terrible remake Awful. that was made. And it's just a terrible decision to remake that movie. But the problem, or it, is it a problem, is that the rape in Straw Dogs has heat to it. It's erotic. It's been eroticized by Peckinpah. And it is hot. And I think a lot of people have had problems wrestling with that scene and the way Peckinpah decided to shoot it and how he decided to shoot Susan George, who plays Dustin Hoffman's wife. Look, it gives Straw Dogs a kind of unique power. It might not be politically correct, but there seemed to feel something. Either it's a male fantasy that's mm-hmm. being explored in that film. And there are a lot of male fantasies being explored within Straw Dogs, uh, not all of them, Peck and Paul would be proud of at all. It's kind of a critique of male behavior as well. But that rape is probably the most troubling in American cinema because of how it's, it's slowed down, it's eroticized to a degree. And that can be as disturbing as you know, violence in a way, the violence that you know, explodes at, mm-hmm. the, at the end of that movie. Well, that leads us into outrage at violence, offense at violence, how violence can be seen as immoral by some viewers. Uh, Pauline Kael talked about Psycho as the movie for her that crossed the line when she first saw it that seemed almost immoral to her. It was so invasive, that killing. And we're talking about a critic here who was often turned on by and defended violent movies. She was in love with Peckinpah. She was in love with De Palma. They were among her favorite filmmakers, and I guess I get what she was talking about within the context of the era she was watching Psycho in, you know, the violation of the shower scene, and how doesn't everyone think about it when they're taking a shower in a motel somewhere? 
I guess we all have our thresholds. We all have that line that we don't really want to cross or be violated by. Or, or there's just something, maybe the violence isn't so harsh, but there's something, again, that we talked about earlier, the context with which the violence is placed. And I remember being queasy at the Coen Brothers' Fargo the first time I saw it because of the context within which the violence took place. I, I don't feel that way about Fargo now, but in 94 I did. That first screening of Fargo, as much as I admired the rigor of the filmmaking and the performances to a degree, I was also turned off a bit by the gleefulness, the comic gleefulness of the sadism. And most of the time the killings were horrific, but also played out kind of like punchlines in a way. And the absurdist attitude kind of didn't work for me in that moment in the way that many, many years later the killings in No Country for Old Men landed for me. Is there a movie that you feel – and I'm wondering <laughs> because I've, I've seen all your work – is there a movie for you that has somehow – overstepped its bounds for you that just you felt this is too much and i don't like being in this place i mean yeah i had that experience recently uh, uh watching antichrist you know yes. like antichrist but i love the, the lars von Trimmer. oh i really like it too i mean i i thought it was like maybe it's if maybe one of his best yes, movies ever but i was kind of like unable to keep watching i was like really hiding myself from the image which is you know not often that happened to me and and i thought it was a, a you know such a i don't know if it's like the the subject matter or i don't know if it was just like the power of the image that came you know without it being expected every time and kind of uh, uh, in the, in 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 a, in a place i have a i'm living some kind of paradox where i have like hard time to deal with uh, like blood in life you know like mm-hmm. uh, real life and i have no problem to deal with them you know in in movies obviously but somehow i felt that i was like crossing that line between watching uh, or being in a movie and being like facing reality you know there was something very strong and very physical and of course physical you know in this uh, final scene that were like beyond anything i was expecting and that kind of like yeah got me but i love the movie and i think this is why the movie is so efficient the screening that i saw antichrist at was with you know a lot of ucla students it was at one theater over in westwood and the theater was packed with mostly i would say guys in their 20s and when these infamous moments happen near the end of antichrist I have never heard men scream like babies at these couple of very shocking, violent moments, sexualized moments as well, sexual violence. And it was kind of amazing. I turned around and I saw men cowering in their seats and just their jaws were dropped open. That's, that's, yeah, that, that was one in the last couple of years that I think – yeah, I would. I would have to agree. With that. I haven't thought about that for a long time. But yeah, Antichrist I mean, it, it is. It is. I, I can imagine the reaction. I saw it on my own, but I can imagine a, a you know like a screening room like reacting to this movie. It must be pretty wild. The Brett Easton Ellis Podcast at podcastone.com. dot 
What kind of relationship do you have with your sock drawer? Boring colors, missing socks, worn out pairs. Starting fresh usually means choosing between cheap, poor quality blacks and grays or spending a fortune on designer socks. Nice Laundry helps you upgrade your sock drawer while saving you money. Six pairs, including shipping, is $39, or you can get a sock drawer makeover. That's 18 pairs for only $99. The quality is awesome, and the patterns range from stripes to camouflage print. They even help you make room in your sock drawer. Nice Laundry offers a complimentary recycling program. A significant percentage will be reused and repurposed, while the balance will be converted into recycled fibers. Visit www.nicelaundry.com slash brett to get free shipping plus a special edition bonus pair with your first order. That's www.nicelaundry.com slash brett. Hey, this is Greg Fitzsimmons, host of Fitz Dog Radio, right here on Podcast One. Join me, track my rage against middle age, the exploration of what's behind the scenes in Hollywood with guests like John Hamm, Zach Galifianakis, Jimmy Kimmel, Corolla, Hardwick, Rogan, Sarah Silverman, all the big guns. We talk personally in a funny way. Come check it out. Fitz Dog Radio on Podcast One. The Brett Easton Ellis Podcast. You're freaking me out. You're freaking me out. And I could run like a coward for the door, but I'll never get out. You're freaking me out. I know a lot of people last year were talking about The Conjuring. Uh, it was a very successful movie, a big hit, and I liked it. I liked it, but I, I didn't think it was that scary, and it was really an endless series of kind of boo moments uh, achieved with sound effects and editing to the point that I kind of started resenting the movie a bit, even though it was very well made and very smoothly made. You know, the boo moment is the easiest effect to achieve, and a lot of horror movies now take advantage of that with sound effects and jump cut editing, and, and The Conjuring is, I think, fairly contained and tasteful, somewhat eerie. Actually, the filmmaker in America that interests me in terms of the genre right now is a guy named Ty West, who made a couple of scary movies. And the scariest movie that I've seen this year is The Sacrament. It's a kind of slow burn horror movie, completely grounded in reality. And there are a few incredibly disturbing scenes. One of someone being injected with poison that feels so dreadfully authentic and the actor playing the scene out is just is brilliant he goes all the way a child has her throat slit there's a self-immolation that is on a technical level wonderfully achieved and it definitely has its roots in this in 70s exploitation movies it's it's kind of about a, a vice tv camera crew who infiltrated a jim jones like compound and, and it's shot in frame kind of like an episode of vice tv and For some reason, he seems to be the only American filmmaker in the last couple of years who has made kind of an authentically scary movie. I think um, The Sacrament and House of the Devil was Mm -hmm. his other movie. He made an an iffy movie in between called The Innkeepers. It didn't really kind of gel, didn't come together. But I think he's a very interesting filmmaker and one to watch. What is the scariest movie that you've seen lately? I, you know, I really liked The Sacrament as well. I thought The Sacrament was indeed, you know, like a great take on the Jim Jones story. And it's something that I've always been like obsessed with because it's, it's 
a whole society through Jim Jones that you can read, and and, and there is that amazing uh, PBS documentary yes. that kind of feel like the um, the mirror of the sacrament, and it's interesting, I think, to see this and 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 the PBS documentary. But um, recently, really, what you know, like I kind of say that I. I was really impressed and really good, uh, um, a good audience for that Boo Festival of of mm-hmm. the Conjuring as well. I, I love all James Wan and and, and Lee Wanell. You know Lee mm-hmm. Wanell like kind of develop this playfulness mm-hmm. of the the way they are like filming the Boo moment. You know, like the way they can really just you know where every other genre filmmaker will give you the Boo after the. Second reverse shots, they keep playing with it and they yes, keep they extending do. and they keep like they have that kind of you can see them playing with the audience, yeah. And it's really good, you know. It's really like you know, they, they are pushing, you know, it's not happening and it's not happening and it's not yes. happening. Give me that fucking payoff, I know. And it's keeping, 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 <laughs> building up, building up, and then finally it comes. It's a very interesting kind of roller coaster approach of fear. And, and I, was, I was really impressed. It's not fear that stay with you. It's right. fear that you live in the theater and then you back home and it's, you know, it's over. It's not like a fear that kind of like stay with you. It's not something that kind of stay in the back of your head for, for a long time. Well, in that, in that respect, it's like a, it's pure cinema. It's immersive cinema in a way because it wants a relationship with the audience on a level that some movies you watch and think this movie doesn't want a relationship with me in a way, you know. And so the idea that there are kind of puppeteers in a way of, of the audience's emotion um, the, the master manipulator yeah. in a way is is true i just i guess what i'm looking for in a horror movie is something deeper and a kind of fear that disturbs me and i find powerful it's very rare to get that and i think the conjuring is kind of like kind of like a prank you know, it's a prank movie. Yeah, in a way. I mean, it's you know, like it is definitely like a, it's like a blueprint of a, a theme park attraction. It's really something that's just here to give like sensation. It's like the ultimate popcorn, yeah, you know, like movie. Yeah. But it's not definitely not something that just give you like a, you know, we're talking about Antichrist. Antichrist is the opposite. Antichrist stay with you. Like the imagery of Antichrist will haunt you for like you know uh, ever. Yeah, you know, like the theme and 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 the responsibility and the death of that kid in the beginning. Which yes. is so stylized, so amazing. You know, yeah. it, it is. It is something that's like the straight opposite of the Conjuring. Yeah, it is. I was also thinking about a movie that I did think the first half was quite frightening, is Sinister, which was Ethan Hawke as a writer who's moved into a house and he finds up in the attic a series of films that show the killings of families. The opening shot is quite spectacular of the mass hanging in the tree in the backyard. Mr. Boogie or Bogie, I think, yeah. And then the movie starts explaining itself and it doesn't become scary anymore. You start to understand why this is happening to Ethan Hawke. And by the end, you're kind of just confused and bummed out that it has been so explained to a degree. And that made me think about how complications seems to destroy horror backstory seems to destroy horror explanation seems to destroy horror why does reagan get possessed in the exorcist why her uh, why is the overlook hotel haunted or is it haunted why does the shark attack in jaws how did carrie white get her powers what happened to Leatherface and his family in the Texas Chainsaw Massacre? Luckily, these questions are not answered in backstory in the original films. 
We do have Michael Myers' backstory in the original Halloween, but it is not explained why the little boy stabs his sister to death or why he chose the people he kills that night. In later movies, it's belaborly answered. But it's seemingly random in the original Halloween, and even as Dr. Loomis wanders around pontificating about evil, evil, it's still an abstract movie with no answers. And I think that randomness is what the best horror movies achieve. This just kind of random thing that happens to people. The ending to The Strangers, for example, is one of the most powerful endings of a horror movie because we have no idea why this couple is being tortured and harassed by these masked intruders. And then at the very end, before they are murdered, the wife asks, why are you doing this to us? And one of them simply says, because you were home. That's horror. What do you think about this idea of the complicated horror movie compared to, I guess, the the incident horror movie where a, just a thing happens and people have to deal with this thing? I, I, I think it's one of the biggest trouble we have right now with uh, making efficient and great horror movies is to be locked into a system where we have to explain and create this backstory and create this reason. There is yeah. nothing logical or nothing really uh, uh, explaining the nightmare but the sensation you have living that nightmare is always stronger than if someone was in your nightmare explaining to you what you were going through and 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 that's for me is like the you know on every script uh, in the genre that uh, uh, I'm working on it's always the question is like you killing the fear by giving an explanation you know like uh, i think the shining is a great example of a movie that if you look into you know detail don't make sense in many many aspects yes. but that's also why it's so scary it's because you want to know and you know that the answer is something that you will never really have a, a you know a, a reveal and 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 i think it's something that david lynch tried to do somehow with lost highway as well mm-hmm. you know like going through the nightmare and and assuming completely the the, the form of the nightmare as a as a narrative uh, structure you know without getting into any explanation or any and i think it's a very interesting type of cinema i like that type of cinema because it's a real experience it's something where you don't you're not given the the key and you have to imagine the key on your own and you have to have your own interpretation of the of the story and i think this is also why tv became so interesting recently is also because you can create that mystery without giving the key and keep the key and the explanation for way later in the season or like even like in the next season and that's something that genre is like suffering a lot today is that like tsunami of explanation in every movie where as you said in Sinister but there is so many other where like just you start the movie and it's so scary and it's great beginning and then everything comes and you being like force feed this kind of like backstory and that reason and where are the rules and every time I watch this movie I can see the executive behind like saying what are the rules I don't understand the rules are all over, all over the place you know now it's fear goes into instinct goes into like something that we cannot really figure out but we kind of feel within our subconscious and not necessarily without a full you know like a rational explanation and I think it's way stronger like this. I agree. I mean, I'm in the process of producing a horror movie I wrote, and it is just about a uh, – it's about someone who's being stalked by these cult members. And it really is about it. – it's a slow burn horror movie, and you don't want these people to get a hold of him because you know 
you, you've seen what they're capable of. And so the movie is kind of this stalking movie in a way. And then ultimately he is taken in by them and then the movie progresses to its end. And the producer, my producing partner and myself, I mean, part of why we're so attracted to this idea and this movie is based on an, on an urban myth is that there is no reason at all for why these people are doing what they're doing. We know that they've done it many times before and that we are now privy to watching how they operate on one particular guy. And, you know, a couple of we sent it to a couple of independent producers to, to raise financing, and we got the same coverage back. Like again, what is the backstory of these three people? What's wrong with them? Uh, what happened in their childhood? What made them? And you just kind of have to ignore that and just find someone who's on your same wavelength. Because once you start answering the questions in horror, it becomes progressively progressively, progressively less scary, mm-hmm. less frightening. It's the randomness of it. It's the lack of explanation. It's the lack of rules. Rules aren't scary. Rules are the least scary thing possible. But you made a series of remakes that you've either directed or that you've written and produced. Uh, Wes Craven's 1977 Hills of Eyes. Joe Dante's 1978 Piranha. Mirrors was a remake of a South Korean film. And William Lustig's infamous 1981 Maniac, which you recently produced and wrote and which stars Elijah Wood. And I was wondering why remakes? I mean, so few work. Yours actually do. You're one of the few people who have pulled off uh, making, making Piranha more interesting. Definitely an improvement on The Hills Have Eyes. I mean, I love Wes Craven, too. But... He even would admit that he didn't have the money or the resources to really do The Hills Have Rise correctly, and I think you guys solved that. And, and also, remakes are just like, you know, mostly a dead end. I mean, we talked about the terrible remake of Straw Dogs, but everything from Black Christmas to The Fog has been remade to really low, bad, you know, effect. And God help the person, the executive who one day wants to remake Don't Look Now or Deliverance. That kind of haunts me if that ever that ever happens. You know, The Hills Have Eyes and Maniac, I think, do improve upon the original. But, of course, they're set in a different time. Maniac, even though it's 1981, is basically a 70s movie. And definitely The Hills Have Eyes is, too. And they both have, in their favor, a kind of grittiness, a kind of grittiness to them that, of course, the remakes really don't have. Those movies were made very, very cheaply. And somehow you can tell, and that somehow adds to the horror of it all. And maybe they're scarier because of the bad lighting and the bad acting. Maybe there's something more out of control about that than in the very contained, smooth way that your remake of The Hills Have Eyes and even Maniac don't really have to that degree. I mean, in your remake of Maniac, instead of Joe Spinell, you have Elijah Wood. And I would say that uh, that's a very perverse choice in a way because Spinell, who is is great in Maniac, is this hulking, pockmarked monster that you can actually understand women would be scared and running away from him. And then, you know, you have – it's just not the same really with Elijah Wood chasing women and have them screaming in terror as he approaches them. But you've solved this. You've solved this by having it become a POV movie in a way. And it's all from the maniac's point of view. And so you only really see Elijah in mirrors. What do you think about that idea that there is something about the grittiness that it's very hard to reproduce now in terms of making these movies? And also, why do you think you've been involved with remakes? I, you know, like the the, the remakes is uh, is something that I was not even you know expecting or willing. It's just right after high tension, we arrive in LA, and I think we met Wes Craven, 
was our second meeting like uh, uh, the next day and he told us about the idea of redoing the Hills of Eyes and I thought at the time it was it was like kind of two it was doing two things for me I always wanted to be able to find a story or something that allow me to dig inside Deliverance or Straw Dogs and the Hills of Ice story was definitely in that same uh, kind of vein and the original movie you know, in Wes's world, was not a good movie. Yeah, no, you know, no. he was not happy with the original movie. It was successful. He was really successful, yeah, become a cult movie. Yeah. But he was like, that's not really what he wanted to yeah, achieve. You, you can tell. Yeah, that's not what he wanted to do. And I think he really, he was completely championing the idea of like doing a, a new Hills of Eyes because he wanted to have the opportunity of doing the movie that he always wanted to do. So t- together, we, I think it's exactly what we did. And, and, and so we, we never look at The Hills of Eyes as something that was just like such a great movie that we had to, you know, like mimic, I mean, like mm-hmm. uh, copy. We just start from the story again and just recreate the movie from, from inside. Uh, Maniac was another story because Maniac for me is one of the best movie ever made. You know, it's like my, it's one of the reasons I did high tension in the first place. You know, I, I love Maniac. And, and by opposition to the Hills of Eyes, Joe Spinell's uh, performance is a real performance. Now, there is a uh, real acting. Uh, there is. And he's amazing in some of the scenes. I love how he says fabulous a couple times. The movie is great. But I'm curious, what is it about Maniac that moves you? I mean, what is it about? That movie. It was that, you know, it, it's it's interesting because the idea of the POV came in a very obvious way because the memory I had from Maniac was a POV movie, and it's not. No, it's not. No, it's absolutely not. Uh, Maniac is not a, a POV movie, but you have the feeling that you're next to Just Pinel, that you're in his head, and you cannot understand him. You know, there is something very strong in in a in a in a French book, uh, Albert Camus, uh, The Stranger. Mm-hmm. It's like it's it, it's a book that's written in the first uh, person, but in the same time, whatever comes through the head of the main character is something that you will never really understand. Right. There is a mystery of what he's going through, but the audience is inside him, not understanding his choices, not understanding his feeling, but in the same time being forced to be inside him, and, and, and that was. I think the idea behind like remaking uh, Maniac, and that was the only reason because, you know, I couldn't see myself like taking Maniac and try to redo the same thing, try to find another Joe Spinell. We had to find something different, mm-hmm. another way to do because Maniac, the Bill Lustig one, will stay here forever, and I hope people will keep watching it again and again. Uh, All Maniac is a different movie. It's really a movie where we wanted to somehow take that challenge of not using the usual uh, filmmaker tool to create the fear. You know, from the moment you are inside the head of the killer, you're cutting yourself from building tension. You cannot, you know, have the, the dolly shot following the, the victim. You cannot do the insert on the feet walking in the street. You cannot do, you know, like the wall intercut that build up the tension because you are in the POV of the killer. So the fear that you create through that POV is a different fear. It's a, it's, a, it's a feeling of being inside someone who's going to do something atrocious and not be able to tell the person to just run or be able to stop yourself. And I think that, that kind of like make us watch ourselves in, in that mirror that turn ourselves into some kind of beast or monster or dark side of ourselves. I think, you know, like Maniac is really about... Uh, 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 
what we all feel, like the fear to be alone, the fear to be abandoned, the fear to not be loved. And in a, in a certain extreme, like the character of Frank Zito is, you know, like achieving all this killing to not be alone. So you feel for him, you're inside his head, and in the same time, he's the most like a, a, a violent killer you can find out there. I remember seeing Maniac when it first came out, and I think it was released unrated here in the United States. And we had gotten used to Tom Savini's work. Uh, he's the great makeup artist who did uh, Dawn of the Dead, and he did some some spectacular effects in Maniac, especially I think Tom Savini's own head gets mm-hmm. blown open yeah. in the car, and it was like we hadn't really seen that before in a movie. I'm not as big of a fan of Maniac as you are, and I do think that your version, and I know you're going to think I'm crazy, that I thought your version was kind of a step up. Maniac just kind of ends, uh, I don't know, strangely. And it just, I, I really do think it was hurt by uh, some of the performances. But at the same time, I guess we could argue that's what makes it so gritty mm-hmm. and real is some of the performances by the women, especially the photographer he ends <laughs> up with. It's like, okay. But Joe Spinell grounds everything yes. he's in in a kind of reality. And he's, I forgot how good he was in that movie and how kind of fearless that Mm -hmm. performance is. We talk a lot on this podcast with filmmakers about the drifting away of the theatrical experience. And, you know, one of the most pleasurable things I remember from my adolescence throughout my 20s is going to a horror film in a theater. So you're, first of all, out of your comfort zone. You're not in your house. You're with a bunch of strangers in a giant dark room being violated by these images and it's this communal experience that for a lot of horror films the experience of it it enhances the whole feeling of you know sure i mean i look this is a reality i watch many movies at home now i on apple tv a movie a night maybe i check what's on vod and the idea of that theatrical experience kind of dimming is well it's happening it's kind of real i mean what do you think of someone who i would imagine wants to continue working in this genre. Uh, You've made a lot of really interesting horror movies, and I imagine you want to make more. Does this distract you at times? Are you thinking about this? Or what is your ultimate feeling about where we are going in terms of watching content, and especially watching the content of horror films? I I, I completely uh, think about that every every day in my work because it is something that you you feel that the deal is done, that there is nothing to... To do to reverse the the steam that we still have some it's it's strange right now because like the only like uh, uh, given in theatrical release are like you know like two hundred million dollar like budget superhero superheroes movies or franchise or like you know huge studio movies and smaller movies the smaller movies are the only one that keep like fighting to have like a a, 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 a real like theatrical release because the, the spectacle of the blockbuster cannot really compete with the fear when it's really scary. And that's the reason why The Conjuring was such a success in the middle of all those blockbusters. And I think it's also the reason why like Jason Bloom have been so successful, you know, recently with all these movies, because fear is something that people, you know, feel they don't need, they don't need visual effect. They don't need you know, big budget. It's here. So, but the more and more we are like uh, uh, getting into that world that where the VOD release or like the the you know day and day kind of release is is happening, it's going to be more and more difficult. And I feel that the genre, like a movie that's supposed to be a full experience, like a full immersion, 
can only really be in the theater. I mean, this is the only place where you can have, you know, you forget about your comfort zone, you're really in the dark room, and you just watch something, and you cross the mirror, you go on the other side, you forget that you're in the screening room with all those strangers. And that feeling can happen, you know, in your uh, living room as well, watching the movie. It can happen, you know, to you, because the storytelling is the only thing that matters. It's not like the 3D, it's not, the immersion comes from the storytelling. So, if the storytelling is efficient, you will necessarily dig into and, 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 and be immersed in the movie. But in the theater, you have the other reaction. And you can feel the tension. I've been to so many test preview where you discovered your movie for the first time with like 400 people, and you can feel the tension. You can feel people being scared in the same time. You can feel them jumping in the same time. You can feel them like cheering or, or be, you know, disgust in the same time. And that's something that just enhanced the feeling because when you feel that hundred people around you are in the same, there is like a, a, a like a communion around the experience of watching this movie. And that's something that no living room, no iPad, or no, you know, like any other device can can compete with. And yet, I imagine you, like myself, watched The Sacrament, Ty West Sacrament on VOD. Yes. And I have to say that I didn't move from it. I didn't take a break. It is an attempt, and I think a mostly successful one, in that kind of immersion, that kind of immersive cinema, where it's a kind of a POV movie. We see everything through the lens of the camera crew. And, you know, once I kind of got that out of the way, I was okay with that. I I don't know if they needed to do it. Ultimately, it works for the movie. But yet we both were scared by that film. We both want – I watched it in the safety of my bedroom Mm -hmm. on an afternoon. And it still got to me. It still really got to me, especially when everything starts collapsing and the poisoning starts taking place. And, again, I must admit, I watched uh, The House of the Devil on VOD as well. And I remember watching that. And as the movie continues and the girl is still alone in the house and she's wearing her Walkman and you're just waiting for something to happen. You know there's a room full of bodies somewhere in that house. How did that get there? What's going to happen to this girl? And Ty West just teases and teases and teases it out. And alone in your room, that can be very effective. Do I wish that I had time or I could have seen them in a theater? Yes, but that's just not... And I, I think both Sacrament and the House of the Devil had a minor, minor theatrical release. But yes, that seems to be this thing of the past. And I don't know. I mean, maybe it's a transitional moment that will lead us into another kind of way to scare audiences. I, I saw I saw Maniac in in you know in the theater with a lot of people. Your the remake, the, yeah, yeah, the yeah, remake, yeah. and 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 it was a very different experience than I think experiencing it you know at home. Even if you can experience Maniac at home and. The theatrical release of Maniac, the remake, was really like minor, so no one, right. I think, saw it in the movie theater. But I wish we could have access to this theater. And I know I'm exactly like you, you know, like most of the movies because of my work or because of the access to this movie, I have to watch them, you know, in my, you know, living room on, on, on VOD. And, but I know watching them, and I cannot help myself to think, oh, what would be the experience if I was in a crowded room? watching it and I think it will be a very different and more efficient thing but unfortunately it's the reality of things where you know we have more and more and you're right you know a good movie is a good movie and get you in no matter what 
no matter what is the surface you're watching it on. Right. And not even really with a, a crowded theater. I mean, mm. it can even be sometimes alone in a theater. Watching a scary movie can be the most unnerving of all. And you often, I, I often find myself, if I do that, it's midday in the middle of the week and I go see a scary movie and it's kind of working on me. I will turn around often mm. and check the back of the theater and see, <laughs> what does that guy up in the last row want? What's, what's going on with that? So... I know that you were going to do the remake of Pet Cemetery, and we talked briefly before we started this um, hour that that's been in play for a long time. I remember six years ago, I was asked to meet with the producers to write the script. And what I came up with, what my pitch was, was far gorier than they wanted to do. They wanted a PG-13 Pet Cemetery because this was in the era of, you know, a lot of PG-13 horror movies were getting made and making a lot of money. So they hired another scriptwriter who was pretty proficient at doing the PG-13 horror. And I had read that you were somewhat involved in this project for a year or so and that you have but you're not involved with the remake anymore. What what was that process? I you know like uh, uh, I remember being 12 and watching the the first uh, Pet Cemetery before I read the book, uh, the first adaptation. And at the time, you know, I, I remember me and my best friend had to stop watching the movie when Zelda uh, character, like the sister of Rachel, with her like, you know, bones sticking out of her skin kind of appeared. It was like so scary. We're not expecting that. And we had to stop down and we watched the movie the next day. And it was one of the most like... Uh, scary experience of watching a movie I remember like you know at at, at that age so when you know like I heard about like the idea of redoing this my first reaction was yeah you know what the original was very scary already and I watched the original and it's kind of super dated and really like you know how to so I could okay you know what there is a good reason maybe to bring back that story and the book is also somehow you know really powerful it's one of the best I think King King book and and, and he thinks it's the scariest book that he's written yeah Yeah. I mean it, it is really definitely scary and looking in the script that they were developing at the time I felt that we were far away from the right level of of fear. You know, it was too, uh, everything was toned down, you know, Mm -hmm. and they also were trying, because they wanted to have something fresh, to change some of the major elements of the book that I think were not the the right thing. So, and also, you know, I have to say that kind of, um, I end up doing all those movies that somehow are like, you know, like real remakes are kind of, faraway remakes right. of other movies right. and I just wanted to not lock myself and become the remaker so I kind of felt that at that time I had to kind of te- take a step back from from any uh, you know like because I will end up just redoing all the, my favorite movie <laughs> which is which is a, a quite interesting uh, uh, <laughs> career. You know, career plan yeah. it's like I'm taking all the movies I love and I'm going to redo <laughs> them one after the other and mm-hmm. let's see what happened and, and it just you know, I, I felt it was something where, yes, we will be able to update it, but the script, the way it was, was not scary enough. And then, you know, I read another script that was very similar in the in the topic, that was very interesting and original, and we decided to go. And we just, you know, it, it was something that I was going to produce, and we just wrapped uh, the movie Take Place in India. It's about, like, you know, like a, a couple dealing with the death of their sun and some kind of like temple outside of uh, Mumbai where you can talk to the dead mm-hmm. one more time and I mean there is a whole like uh, interesting kind of twist where you bring back the the ghost of the dead inside the house 
the same way Pat Cemetery was, you know, like using that device. So it is something that uh, I thought was more interesting to take the challenge of like taking another road into something original instead of just like try to redo something that was so efficient in me. And, and I also saw that, that the studio didn't have really the intention of making the ultimate uh, a scary movie that Pet Cemetery should be. Yeah. So ultimately, as you look at your career down the road, I know you have a movie coming out in October called Horns, which is kind of a mashup of a lot of different genres. Uh, it's based on the book by Joe Hill, I think. And do you ever sense yourself going even further in a direction where you would do a drama, where you would do maybe just a straight out realistic action movie? Or do you still find yourself lured into the kind of the crazy fantasy that you can explore as a filmmaker with that genre that you that you work in? I, I love the genre. I love fear. I, I still have the same uh, uh, excitement every time I'm writing like an oral story about like being you know behind that door waiting for someone to pass to scare that person. I love like stories that involve uh, a character facing extreme situation because the situation are always like a great question being asked to the audience what you will do if you were in that position what you will do would you, will you have the same courage will you like hide under the bed jump by the window fight the killer you know all those questions are always a very interesting kind of create the immersion of the audience inside the story that's what really me as a moviegoer that the kind of movie I love the most. But those kind of question and theme, uh, you can find them in any kind of genre, in, you know, like a drama and, you know, period movies. And and, and Horns was definitely a, a step aside from the genre. Even if there is horrific element, it's more like a dark comedy, like a fable with a, a like a supernatural element, but it's very romantic in the same time. I and mean, the book is very interesting for that. It's really the the story of uh, Daniel Radcliffe waking up with horns growing up on his head and the power of the devil to find out who killed his girlfriend. So it's a very interesting kind of love story, thriller, but not an old movie. It's not scary at any point. And uh, I kind of enjoy, you know, really enjoy doing doing this movie. And I'm looking into a, a lot of projects today that are not necessarily in the genre, but are more like allow me to use what I learn making this movie to bring that to another kind of cinema. But I love, you know, I love scary movies and I will always come back to them at one point. The Brett Easton Ellis Podcast. TrueCar.com is changing car buying forever. Yes, every day TrueCar users receive negotiation-free guaranteed savings. Some features not available in all states. In the first three months of this year, over 126,000 cars were sold by the TrueCar Certified Dealer Network. TrueCar users save an average of $3,078 off MSRP. When you're ready to buy a car, just follow these three easy steps. First, go to TrueCar.com and find out what other people paid for the car you're looking for. Then register at TrueCar.com to see upfront pricing information and lock in your savings. 
The third step is simple. Just print out your True Car Savings Certificate and take it to the True Car Certified Dealer for a better, hassle-free car buying experience. Remember, every day, True Car users receive negotiation-free, guaranteed savings. Save time, save money, and never overpay. Visit TrueCar.com today. That's TrueCar.com. The Brett Easton Ellis Podcast. Download a brand new episode every Monday at podcastone.com.